I mean, addiction doesn't doesn't often have a um, any positive connotations to it. But if we can all get addicted to you know this regeneration of this incredible planet, then that may be a good addiction. <laughs> That's sacred activist Tim Silverwood, the founder of Take Three for the Sea. And you're listening to The Beginning of Us. Feel like something is rapidly transfiguring in my core being, an awakening of sorts. The Beginning of Us. A raw conversation hosted by your main frother, Billy Otto. Pulling apart what it means to rebirth, to rewild, to be curious and to rechild. Yeah, fam, thanks so much for waiting for this episode. I'm sorry, it's come so late. Yeah, guys, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Um, TEDx was amazing. It was such an honor to facilitate, to hold space for some incredible conversations regarding climate change and climate action, food waste, sustainable business. I think all the videos are still online, so you can check it out tedxdarlinghurst.com and you can find the feed that was once live. Yeah, and so I'm right now in between houses. I am looking over the Tweed River on the Tweed Coast and it's gorgeous. You know, the liminal space is exciting when you're moving houses and, you know, you don't have your normal flow but there's new inspirations that come to you and I'm really excited about the new house that I'm moving into in a few weeks' time after tour. Tour. Okay, let's talk tour. Brisbane, I'm coming to you. Sydney, I see you. Newcastle, I see you. Byron Bay, I see you. I'm doing some headline shows next week in Sydney. There's still some tickets to the first session of that. The other one's sold out. Um, Teoski and I are playing some shows. I'm supporting him at the zoo. I'm supporting him at the Oxford Art Factory in Sydney. And then I'm hitting the road with my best blondie Byron brother, Kyle Lionheart, for a bunch of shows. All the shows will be in the show notes. All there for you. Super excited because I'm releasing a new song and it's all about letting go. The song is called Let Me Loose. Yeah, Let Me Loose. Let's go. You can pre-save that on Spotify and Apple Music. After the last interview with Ash Gromwald, which was insane, I got some cool feedback and um, I'll read this one out by Max. And it says... Dude, just wanted to shoot you a message. Keep doing what you're doing. You're such an inspiration and you're rad. If we ever get the chance to meet, I will reiterate with better words and more emphasis. But you, my man, are kicking goals. Thanks, dude. Means a lot. Thanks for tuning in, Max. I don't know where you're from, bro, but big love to you. Sending vibes your way. Guys, love hearing your thoughts. Um, Thanks for the shares on the last Ash episode. Really, really cool. We're diving into a special one today with Timmy Silverwood. And so um, buckle up because you might be challenged about the way that you see consumerism, um, but also encouraged about climate change and ways that we can better listen to science and spirituality to uh, find solutions for this crisis. Heaps of love, guys. The beginning of us. I'm here today with the Begola Plateau resident, a man with an incredibly warm and rounded voice. He exudes the sacred energy of a sacred activist. I met the guy in Nui, my hometown. He's a King Planetarian, a TEDx speaker, the man himself, Tim Silverwood. Welcome, brother. Thanks, Billy. Great to be here, mate. 
dude. Um, you have a real loving energy about you, man. And just to be in your house, I've just kind of coming from my busy, trying to get things done mindset, paradigm, trajectory. I've walked in here and I just feel this immersion of peace and rest, man. Well, next time you come, we'll um, we'll have you for longer, and we'll go and swim in some salt water and waltz around some little beautiful natural places. But um, yeah, mate, thanks for coming. Yeah, man. Um, what brought you guys to like this part of Sydney? Look, I grew up so we're on the sort of far reaches of the northeast corner of of Sydney, I suppose, the peninsula that extends up towards the very end, which is Palm Beach, and then you've got the Hawkesbury River. And on the other side of the Hawkesbury River, you've got the Central Coast, which is where I grew up. I grew up at Arimba and as a young enthusiastic surfer, I used to go exploring all throughout Budai National Park and these incredible little natural places and waves and would always look across and, and see Baron Joey Lighthouse and all this land around the Pitwater. Um, so, yeah, I've always loved the area, but it was just circumstance. Um, we were living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, uh, my wife and I, and I just filled my cup. It was a really nice community to be in for a while, particularly when I was really launching into my environmental work, but my cup was full and overflowing and I just didn't need that anymore. Mm. So a couple of years ago, we just assessed what our next manoeuvre would be, knowing this is not the end for us here. This is a nice place to be now. There's a lot more nature. We've slowed down our existence and our pace, Mm. but I want to slow down much further. I want to go and get into land and country and small community is is my end goal. But with my work obligations and trying to make a real goal of things, this is a really nice middle ground. Yeah, nice balance. Yeah, man, there's something to be said about um, being, being closer to the trees, closer in proxy with the ocean and simplicity, space, I'm stoked that you found a bit of it, like on the fringe of Sydney. I think for me, like moving to Byron, it's just opened up my heart. Like the spaciousness, the outer spaciousness has opened up an inner spaciousness as well. And I just would have never have known the impact it would have had on my mind and my soul, hey. But even just walking into your backyard and seeing like an open, uh, a common area backyard with eucalypt and sandstone and birds, it's just like it must do something to you spiritually every day. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, there's nothing quite like, you know, even especially now working from home, you, know, you open the doors up, the the wind just flows through, it's full of birdsong and insects and, you know, the natural world feels part of your life as opposed to it feeling that excluded when you go into the city or you go into a cubicle or an office, you just, you feel and you are a million miles away from the natural world and so that's why for me this is, you know, this is a, it's lovely but it's still just a stepping stone because I just find that living in amongst nature, which is what I did for my entire growing up, you know, I grew up on 25 acres of raw bush and it was just, that to me is life, is Mm. living amongst it. So, yeah, I didn't do too well living in little one-bedroom apartments. Um, Did you live in Bondi? So I lived in Bondi, yeah, two different apartments. I was probably there for seven years. Um, The great thing being you're only ever walking distance from the ocean, so that's why it, again, just concreted and cemented why surfing in the ocean is so important to me because in the absence of any other 
natural um, experiences, the ocean, as long as it's there, you know, you can go and um, get that connection that you need. Yeah, man, I guess for you, like growing up in um, Arimba, because I'm from Newcastle, like the south end of Newcastle, grew up on Lake Macquarie, grew up around a lot of bush as well. Like my childhood was spent on BMX bikes, building cubby houses and just I'd see kookaburras every day. I was just so close and I used to grow up, I grew up fishing and squidding and surfing was a huge part of my life. And and I think when you've grown up with that kind of heritage and that's what's life when you've you've grown up in the bush and close to the ocean for yourself growing up in a rimba on 25 acres, do you, do you think that was the initial sowing of the seed of you becoming an activist was that's what you grew up with and that's something you wanted to strive to protect? Yeah, I think it was. Um, you know, who knows, maybe some of that was already in me. I grew up on in Cairns. I, I was born in Cairns and so the Great Barrier Reef was something that was, you know, obviously surrounding me in those very early years of my life, but it was going to beaches and discovering the rock pools and, you know, entire universes in a 40-centimetre diameter rock pool, you know, as a kid just going, you're kidding, like look at all this complex beauty that's before me. But it was definitely going into that bushland area as a young person and finding myself and acknowledging my minuscule part in this bigger picture of of the natural world surrounding me. And I think that definitely led me into um, wanting to understand more about it. So at high school, it was geography and biology and science that were just calling me to understand and to learn. So then uni was like, well, go and understand sustainability, dive into this knowledge because with that foundation awareness and understanding, it just felt that was going to be my launch pad into whatever my career would be. So, yeah, I've got a lot to thank the natural world, my parents obviously for giving me access to so much of that natural bush from a young age, all my friends who took me into, you know, their community around surfing and exploration. So, yeah, life's been good. Mm. Yeah, man. Um, Do you feel like with that there was a particular point in your journey, thinking of you on the uh, on the hero's journey, like was there like a catalyst point that made you go like, wow, like I want to take the next step, I want to go deeper and I want to seek this out and like feeling that calling and that path in the work of sustainability. It's a massive one and like, but I'm sure there was something core in there and I don't know if it was in your later teens or before uni or. Yeah, it was like, um it was sort of all these different layers of the cake that were sort of just building up around me. Like it was that foundation. So that was obviously those early experiences, my decisions even at high school with what to study and what to sort of pour my heart and mind into what I decided to do at university. But where it really started to take shape and full form was my mid-20s and going travelling and, you know, embarking upon the adventure of self-discovery and, you know, what I refer to as my bachelor of life. You know, I'd gone and learn about all the complex challenges of the natural world and humans' roles within it around those theorems of sustainability, but I still hadn't gone and seen it with my own eyes and touched it and smelt it. So donning that backpack and going to Asia and trekking around India and that was to me like, okay, I think I get it now. I've Mm. seen the 
complexity with my own eyes. And so coming back after that bachelor of life and getting to my later 20s, it was like, okay, I think I, I think it's all coming together now. So right, where is it? And I was genuinely sort of wondering what was going to be that lightning rod where I could actually go, right, this is where I want to put my work. So I worked for a conservation group up in Newcastle for a couple of years and it wasn't really filling my heart. Mm-hmm. And so then... The real catalyst, I suppose, is, is someone that, you know, hopefully you'll get on the podcast one day. I definitely want to get him on the podcast one day is Dave Rastovich when hmm. I happened to be camping up at Point Plummer near Crescent Head and it was in the middle of his transparency voyage, the first one that he did, which was basically him. I think he had about six of these Hobie Cat kayaks with the little sails mm. on them in total and he basically was going from Byron Bay to Bondi following the southerly migration of the humpbacks to bring awareness to the Doco the Cove. Mm. And so here's Dave who I'd obviously always marvelled at with his surfing prowess and increasingly his bold opinions and stances on environmental issues which, as you know, is very refreshing for the surfing community yeah. at the time and potentially even still. And... Um, that night, like, they rolled into town, so I sat around the campfire, like, with him and Chris Del Morrow and Howie Cook and all these incredible legends, and I just thought, here's a bloke who didn't wait for something else to ignite his abilities to do this. He just went out there and did it. And so, mm. like, basically from that day on, we spent the night, we went surfing the next day together, I was just frothing, and I was like, I'm going to do it too. So a couple of days later when they came to Avoca Beach Picture Cinema to share the um, the doco, The Cove, I asked if I could get up on stage and say something and I did and I got up and I said, I want to start doing beach cleanups inspired by these guys. Who wants to join me? And by doing that, someone made the connection in the audience to Mandy and Roberta who had the idea for Take Three for the Sea and all this happened like within a week or two and I was connected to those guys It's like, I'm ready now. I'm going to help you guys. <laughs> wow, man. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Like I love the fact that you felt this compelling call at the night of a screening and you're like, guys, I want to say something. And they were just like, yeah. You know, <laughs> like I've run so many events and like random people that want to get on stage, I'm always like about 40% about it. I'm like, oh. Could go either way. agenda. <laughs> You know, um, but that's great, man. Like, I love that that was, you know, part of that metamorphosis, part of that catalyst, that changing season for you. Yeah, I've, um, I think Lauren's going to come on the podcast, Lauren Hill. Awesome. Yeah, which is really exciting. Like, I love the water people, what they're doing. Yeah, there needs to be more conversations. Um, I think for myself, man, like, um, I think we always talk about, like, in that interview that I did with Shauno um, at the start of this year, he said something really convicting to me of just like Billy we grow up we grew up in in the most incredible country in the world like I've traveled the world I've seen it all and um but we we don't realize that if we don't protect it if we don't step up with our custodianship it might not be here forever and just kind of like I think we take it for granted and I think when we don't go to the research to the peer reviews to the science there is this like, oh, it's beautiful, look at it. But we kind of get what he would call landscape amnesia. Like we don't realise how much environments have actually changed. And he used the example of cicadas, <laughs> mm. you know, like insects, um, you know, critters that used to 
be teeming, you know, through our bush. And, but there's just, there are changes to our landscape that we don't really realise. And, and I think it's people like yourself that are, that are willing to kind of set that intention and just, and see the situation in the world for what it is in our backyard, but also abroad and just say, you know, I've seen it and I can't go back. Like, I think if you get exposed enough and you soften your heart, you get to a point where you're just like, I can't keep my head in the sand. Totally, yeah. And I mean, I think back to, I was surprised because like, in my studies, we did learn all about, you know, the origins of sustainability movement and the science behind it and where it was at. So sort of everything from that, you know, 1992, um, you know, the first Rio Earth Summit and then it kind of, it was, it was surprising to me that after all this great complex learning and theorems that the mission that I really put the stake in the ground and said I'm going to work on this was the most basic of all. Like we've been told not to litter, you know, since the 50s and 60s and there's been dozens of brilliant organisations and thousands of campaigns telling us not to pollute the planet with this physical thing like, you know, a can or a bottle or a wrapper is like, duh, don't let that into the environment, let alone all the invisible pollutants that we allow into the soil, into the water, into the atmosphere. So it surprised me that here I was um, on my environmental crusade doing the most simple of all um, agendas, <laughs> but then look at the results of it. And I think, you know, you can even talk about your experience with it, this simple call to action that unified people around an issue and gave them something so tangible to do mm. was incredibly powerful. Like I often think back like, you know, I still am, I mean, obviously as a driven environmentalist, I'm always looking at how I can make my biggest impact. But, yeah, it just surprises me that picking up a few bits of rubbish was such a powerful tool mm. in this big complex conversation we have around how the hell do we actually get humans living sustainably on this little pale blue dot that we co-inhabit. Mm. I love that, man, because I think just in life, like the way you learn is through tangible experience. Mm. And it's like there's only so much you can really learn for myself through abstraction or just through information. Like it only goes so far but like when someone punches you in the face, like you feel anger, like you, that, that really hurts you and it's hard to forget that moment <laughs> and it makes you go, wow, like I could feel shame now or I could understand that person's got a mental health problem or something, you know. But then when it comes to like the environment, I think the best thing you can do for my little nieces that are just the cutest things ever is like doing a beach clean becomes deeply spiritual because it's like picking up that one bit of rubbish or taking three pieces as, as we've done historically like it, it, it's, it's, it's a bigger principle. Like it, it's a massive principle and what it opens up in them is like this, this awareness. It's like a portal into a way bigger problem and story that we become a part of. Mm. And I think you've seen that as well. Like obviously like prevention is key. Like there's only so much rubbish we can pick up in the world and like we need to kind of get to, you know, figuring out how we can actually reappropriate waste and not produce plastics at all and petrochemical-based goods and products, but I think the, the actual act, the physical act of picking up rubbish does something to your heart and it's something so tangible you can't, you can't forget that and I think it just becomes like another access point to bigger things and to the bigger problem. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's what I knew and picked up immediately once it started to gain traction was that it was tangible because, you know, we've all seen the images of something like a, you know, a, a single bottle cap um, in, a, in a bird or, you know, one of those tamper seals around, um, you know, a turtle or whatever. Like, you know, a single item was always like, okay, I can actually stop that from becoming a potential problem. Mm. But more than that, it was like a gateway drug because if people were changing their behaviour around picking up trash, around not getting disposable plastics, then they were just going to have an open heart and open mind to that next iteration and that next iteration. So, yeah, I think we're in a really great situation now where all these people who are trying to live with less plastic, living low waste, picking up trash, they are the staunch, ready-to-go troops for the next battle and the next battle. So we've got a fantastic foundation out there. But, my gosh, we need to just double down, triple down, just go mega if we are to um, just really sort of turn this this ship that's heading towards a pretty big iceberg around. So, Mm. yeah, that's where my head's at. Yeah, because I think it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Like if you start picking up rubbish at the beach, you also become more mindful about what you're purchasing, like your own purchasing power. Like you realise that when you go to Coles or Woolies or wherever and and all your bickies are in heaps of plastic, all your fruits coming in plastic and you're just kind of thinking of, well, how can I, um, how can I change this part of my life potentially without shame or guilt but just realising the cost and how much plastic ends up in the ocean because you see it. Mm. Um, and then... Once you're you're kind of in that conversation with yourself and with others, you start thinking, yeah, like I wonder how much my my meat consumption is impacting the atmosphere through methane gases. Oh, I drive a really big four-wheel drive. I wonder how that's impacting the world. Oh, how how am I posturing my life towards regeneration of the planet? Like what am I doing with my time? Oh, this doesn't align with me anymore. There's kind of all these things that just kind of come into consideration as well with your own alignment with yourself. I think it's a package. Like mm. it's beautiful. Like you're saying, I love how you just said then. It's like a gateway drug. Yeah, because it's so true. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder, um, I mean, addiction doesn't doesn't often have a um, any positive connotations to it, but if we can all get addicted to, you know, this regeneration of this incredible planet, then that may be a good addiction. Mm. <laughs> Because I've even found it as well. Like I've heard so many friends say to me, like one thing that they love about living in Byron is that they often are at meetups with mates because of uh, because of marches or like sustainability events or uh, certain seminars or certain conscious events that are attracting something about the environment or something about mental health or something about feminism. And there's just these like these grouping points. And I think like the energy that I found when I'm at like a an activist rally, like even the, the rallies for Fight for the Bite, like it felt like for me that collective consciousness of people coming together, it felt like a church experience. Like the vibration was so high of just everyone coming together for this cause. There's a few Instagram poses that were just there to get the, uh, the selfie, you know, because it looked good for them. But more than anything, it was just a lot of average Joe Blow, Sally's, Australians that just loved the coastline so much that were just like, this is a real threat to our our current situation, our relationship with the ocean, our adoration of our mother ocean and 
the future for our kids as well. Like we want to stand for this. And just the amount of friends that I met because of this whole notion towards sustainability and regeneration was insane. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's, um, you know, getting to another type of science now. Um, there's probably lots of social science and even I'm just sort of lending towards that sort of political science, you know, when you talk about that energy that is galvanised mm. at those sort of forums, I'm just thinking about how that's Trump's game, right? He just holds these <laughs> mega mega rallies um, because they work. And I think that one of the things I really wrestle with at this point in the human story is, you know, polarisation and marginalisation and all these divisions and inequalities and these rifts that are forming. And I always come back to the sort of feeling like humans have always and will always want a sense of belonging and mm. alignment with others. And so what you're referring to there with those incredible fight for the bike campaigns and what I want to see out of environmentalism in this next era is people galvanising it for the for the right reasons and for a really positive common good. But these tools are so easily manipulated now more than ever yeah. into creating that polarisation, those rifts. And so it's like it's a really tough time to, to, to build that for the sake of the planet when there's so much that's trying to also simultaneously tear it apart. It's a mm. really, really interesting time. Yeah. Yeah, really um, using it for for good and for not <laughs> manipulation for causes that are, uh, that aren't regenerative. Um, mm. Yeah, man. Um, I think as a planetarian, you've really summed it up well. Like this whole notion, it's it's holistic, and we're all in this together. And what could you say to someone who's listening in, who's kind of been scared of the word environmentalist and is kind of feeling a bit overwhelmed, like we're in a real situation of climate anxiety and but people don't really know what to do and um, do they go to council, um, do they just take it to Instagram, you know, like what would you say to someone who's real in this place of like realisation um, as to the state of the world and the state of our fragilic ecosystems right now? What could you say to that? Yeah, like I want to make sure that, everyone comes at it in a way that is relative to their own unique situation because not everyone's meant or geared to be an activist or even an environmentalist. And in my vision for the future, you know, things are sustainable not because someone selected them to be, they just are, right? That's, that's the end goal. So, we want to have sustainability embedded into everything. But whilst we're in this phase where it's not, then we're really looking for those of you out there who have got the gumption, the capacity, the circumstances to do more. Um, so, you know, start with where you are. Like, don't think that you have to go and be something right now or tomorrow that might take years. I mean, my environmental journey is decades in, right? I've been doing this for a really long time. And so it's um, if it's new for you, just be sort of practical and pragmatic about it. 
But always, I think if you're joining this train, do it in a way that you acknowledge that you're always going to try and do things better, even if it's just incremental. But start with you are where you are and try to avoid that that deep anxiety. If you feel yourself heading into that deep anxious space, like you know, try and ease yourself back out because we need you to be your best. If mm. we're going to get some positive outcomes out of you, we need you to be feeling good about it. So position yourself in in your journey. I think is a really important lesson mm. that I wanted to share. It's beautiful, man. I. I remember doing Sarah Ricard's course on leadership like early this year and one of the listings that we heard was from a uh, a Native American elder and he was talking about just the 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 collective conversation of what can I do what can I do for the world what can I do for my country what can I do for the planet uh, when it comes to these big crises that we're facing as a as a earth family and his response was the question isn't what I can do. The question is who can I become? That's mm. where it always begins. And mm. it's just like for me that really hit home because I think for myself part of my Protestant conditioning is like work hard, you know, just, you know, buckle up, you know, you know, nine to five, you know, and just, you know, focus is everything. Hard work is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of like this very strong, masculine, powerful thing. And there's there's truth in that. Like obviously, like we need to be balanced. We need to work hard. But really, I think before like making like more, more and more and more programs and things, like it needs to start with the heart. And I felt like for me, like coming out of like a church world where I was like this youth pastor that was getting flown around the world to speak at all these events. I leave the church world and then I go into activism and now they want to put me in front of crowds for another thing. And like, there was part of my ego that was like, yeah, I'm being celebrated with this sustainability event. You know, it's just like, I've got to watch my own lower nature and, and that part of my vibrations as well. And, and just realize that, you know, I've got to start with here and come to that, that voice and, and then think to myself, you know, well, after coming to my heart and to my inner child, like what is in within my reach and, and how can I share this message to my family? And, um, and I've got local beaches and I've got purchasing power and there's just little things that began to lead to bigger things for me. And I think that's a place to start is looking at your, your own heart first and then going into your sphere of influence. Like what is in your world? What is in your workplace? What is in your extended family? Like how you can influence through there? Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, so much of that comes down to, you know, identifying what those behaviours you can improve are, um, making sure that you've got, you know, a decent bit of knowledge. So, you know, there's obviously so many wonderful communicators out there that you can um, learn from, um, really just make sure that the information that you're taking on board and absorbing, you know, is science-based and, um, you know, is practical and pragmatic for people because, again, back to my earlier point, I just really fear about that polarisation and that mm. when we go into some of these forums in the wrong way or with the wrong information, we can just further divide um, the sides of the conversation. So, yeah, find what you're comfortable representing 
make sure you, you know, walk that talk with your own behaviour and then just stick at it. Always do a little bit more, a little bit more. And people, I think, you know, leadership for me is just standing for something and sticking at it and people will eventually find you. Like, you know, you don't have to go and, in my mind, throw all the bells and whistles and the pizzazz around leadership and manipulating all these tools. Just be it, embody it and Mm. it, you know, it pays dividends in the long run. Yeah. I love that, man. Like leadership being like something where we can like, you know, stick to stick to our core convictions and just kind of run with it and not wait for a whole system to back us, not even waiting for our whole family to get behind us, but just knowing what is true, that that inner voice, that inner child and following that. Um, I've always found that, like whether it's with activism or with music, if I can just put my first foot forward, like even with this podcast, man, it's just been the same thing of like for a while I was waiting for a team to form around me. I was, you know, waiting for certain situations to happen and waiting for the podcast arc to kind of really define itself first. But then I was just like, I've just got to take that first step on the water and just just go for it. And it kind of just attracted momentum from there and people getting behind it. And then the arc of the podcast itself just evolving and naturally organically happening because I stepped forward with it. And I find that's just become a principle for my life, just not waiting for situations, but really just, you know, And like, I think so often as well, like I think you were saying about, you know, scapegoating and like, because it's always something that I found, like I've always gotten this funny feeling when people start just smashing ScoMo, (laughs) you know, and he's just another puppet, you know, part of this big system and it's still not really helping with that great divide and that, that chasm between the left and the right and, you know, but I think that's naturally in like our primal instinct is to want to scapegoat leaders and to kind of, you know, they're the problem. They're the, they're the reason why these bushfires happen, which is hectic, koala killer. But again, I don't know if it's really, really helping with that unifying voice for, for a deeper collective consciousness. Yeah. I mean, if a political party and their ideology and their interests are sending you know, our planet off a, off a cliff, then that needs to be acknowledged and for us to then, you know, develop a strategy to counter that. And mm. so I can see why those um, people, because they are people in the day that you mentioned, do become the butt of that energy and inertia yeah. because we desperately need to see this change. Um, it can be quite effective, I guess, from a political standpoint to to label the bad guy and mm. to galvanise people's energy around shifting the bad guy. But yeah, I'm 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 compassionate from the human side of things, but I'm also just you know really intrigued by the science around the long game, like mm. that side, the the far right, and all those vested interests you know, they've been around for a really long time and in their world they're going to be around for a really long time. Like the world's richest families and most influential people, they are imagining a future where they remain the richest and the most influential. So, you know, if we keep adopting the same tools to try and counter that, 
then we're never going to get anywhere. So where are the creative approaches? Where's the science around we can, how we can actually sculpt a long-term? Who knows how long this strategy might be to actually create the sustainable framework for our species on planet Ocean? Like how long might that take? Who's doing the modelling? Because unless we're thinking around that long game, you know, you and I might be having this conversation in 15, 20 years' time and it hasn't got any better. That's a very real likelihood. So when I think about that end of the spectrum and what on earth we do around political leadership around sustainability, I don't have the answers yet and I'm always keen to talk to people who think <laughs> they might have an idea around how we get there because it's very, very complex. Mm. Yeah, man, we've got some pretty archaic systems, like really antiquated structures that seem like giants and they still are, you know, like even coming against like Equinor and these big guys coming over from Norway, like talking to Sean at the start of last year, like it seemed like it wasn't going to be um, a victory for us Aussies that were having a slog at trying to protect the coastline and just just because like these these oil guys, for example, they're, they, they're massive and there's massive money like at play and so many interconnected relationships with government and corporate. And, and so it's like, it's, it is in some ways, it's quite a slow game. And obviously we had the, the win with the fight for the bite stuff, but it's just one small victory in the scheme of things. Like there's a way bigger system. And I, I see that as well. Like we can all give ourselves a pat on the back that, that Equinor didn't come through with that project, but there's still so many... Um, surveys that are happening up and down the coast, as we know, like PEP 11. And, and this is just our country, the Northwest Shelf. Like it's, it's, it's huge. Like we, we get one victory, but three more things pop up like in the next six months, right outside of like my hometown in Newcastle, Swansea Channel. They wanted to do seismic blasts there and it's crazy, man. And so there is like a, a huge systemic problem, but I think, yeah, if science can really hold its place like it should as a directing force, um, yeah, coming back to the science, to the stats, to the studies, to the peer reviews and to I think this is going to be a way that is going to be, uh, it's going to transcend these big systems and these big, um, these wealthy families that are still kind of running the world and it's going to, yeah, it'll really kind of level things a bit. Yeah, and one of the things that I'm sort of doing to play my part in the early stages of what may very well be the, you know, the remainder of my professional career is to actually go into those trenches and that territory, which I've been really allergic to and not interested in. Like I don't like the impact of capitalism and I don't like the power that is held by so few over so many. But if we are talking about a vision for the future where that has changed, you know, change happens by millimetres and inches to get to miles, right? So the quick one for me, and it really touches on that whole conversation around Equinor and petroleum and mining and the fabric of our economic success in Australia is that the world is governed by money and currently we see far too much revenue being generated by 
practices that are damaging to the planet and are damaging to people and are further creating all these complex problems. So what on earth does it look like to make money to compete with that but to do it in a way that doesn't harm people and harm the planet? And that's when we start getting into this world of conscious capitalism and better business and B Corps and, you know, business as unusual. Who are the people out there who are seeing a better way of doing business so the government can still get the revenue it gets now from petroleum extraction and all the mining so that people get the jobs. But it's not in the practices that harm the planet. It's in the practices that help the planet. And so that to me is like, Mm. that was a light bulb moment. It's like I can stay on this side of the fence with my pitchfork saying, you know, neoliberalism and capitalism, you guys have just screwed it. Or I can start to come over to their side of the fence and say, hey, guys, I can see why you're doing this. What do you reckon we try and do it a little bit better? Wouldn't wouldn't you guys like to have a healthy planet for your great-grandchildren? I'm sure you would because that's what you had, you know, back in the um, annals of time. So... Yeah, it's a really profound shift in me and one that I'm really interested in taking, you know, community members around me who are interested in my vision of sustainability along that journey with me. Yeah, man. Stepping outside our little echo chamber, our little vortexes, our bubbles where like everyone agrees with us. Everyone's wearing Patagonia. (laughs) It's like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. Um, Can you just go with me to to the ocean? you've done a lot of research into plastics and waste that ends up in our oceans. Do you have any stats that you could just bring up about, for example, how much plastic ends up, ends up in the ocean every year or what percentage of waste ends up in the ocean? Do you know any of those little insights off the top of your head? Yeah, I'm sure I, you know, I was pretty professional at recalling them through my entire time as being a key spokesperson on the issue. I mean, the science is probably... Just recite your TED talk, mate. <laughs> yeah. Well, even that was back in 2012 when this science was um, was really quite new. But I think the science that's still being, um, you know, celebrated would have been by Jenna Jambeck and her colleagues that was the big 8 million, 8 to 12 million tonnes every year entering the ocean. Um, and what she did as well with that, she said, well, if that doesn't help you um, understand the enormity. Imagine um, you know every meter of the coastline around the world. It was like a garbage truck um, a minute. No, it's a garbage truck a minute going into the oceans. But then she also had a stat around for every meter there was like, I, yeah, I've, I've lost that one. So anyway, just imagine <laughs> an absolutely enormous amount of plastic um, going into the ocean. The amount of waste that we're generating is just obscene. I think the figure for Australians is still about 145 kilograms of plastic that we each use um, every year. So that's, you know, um, how many billies is that? Two billies? <laughs> it's about two, two billiottos yeah. worth of plastic um, <laughs> that we each use each Spot year. Mm. It's not desirable to recycle plastic. So as much as we've been peddled this idea that recycling can be the panacea to consumption, it's like there's just, it's not economic enough to, to recycle plastic. It's too cheap because it's made of derivatives of oil and gas, which as we know, we're extracting copious volumes of this stuff and then the companies that make the money selling it for fuel and energy also make money selling its derivatives to become 
all types of plastic, some good, some yeah. bad, some horrible. Um, so there's not really any appetite to recycle it. So then we have these broken waste management systems where it's cheaper to burn it, it's cheaper just to dump it into a river if you're in a developing community, it's cheaper to fill it into landfill. So, yeah, I mean, things are really bad with waste and consumption. Um, it's it's shocking. Um, the big mm. things I think that are coming out in this sort of current era around it is like is micro and nanoplastics. So we first started thinking about microplastics like around the fibres that come from clothing. We thought about it with the plastic which comes from like, you know, cos- cosmetic products like microbeads. But where it's really going now is things like tyre dust. So, you know, I'm a... I'm a person that tries to minimise the amount of plastic I consume, but if I'm driving my car from point A to point B, I've just created like thousands and thousands and thousands of tiny pieces of plastic that end up on the roads and then they just blow and get washed into the you know drainage networks that end up in the ocean. So all these tiny bits of plastic with heavy metals everywhere. You know, my wardrobe is is basically plastic free. I don't think I'm very fond of wearing anything which has plastic in it. Maybe a little bit of elastine in my, you know, pair of pants or a shirt or some undies. But heaps of microfibers are out there. Things like carpet. Like if you're if you're listening to this right now in your in your car or in your office, chances are that the carpet that is around you or the sofa or the bedding on your bed is got plastic in it. Like it's a polyester or it's some sort of poly material. So that's just a cloud of microplastic that you're living in. So that's why when this statistic came out a couple of years ago from the University of Newcastle, which is where I studied, which was that, you know, we each consume every week about a credit card's worth of plastic, which is about nine grams. So just through the air that we breathe, the fluids that we drink, our lives, our food that we eat, we're getting like nine grams of plastic. And hopefully most of that just passes through, goes in through our excrement, um, our urine, but a lot of it probably stays. And that to me is just a horrible thought that all that plastic inside my body, I'm sure it makes you all feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, like I, I think I shared this stat in a school the other day when I was speaking that even our oceans, uh, I think by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Is that is that? Yeah, that was um, Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Yeah, I MacArthur think modelled off that Jenna Jambach research. Yeah. And yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we're taking so much biomass out of the ocean. And one interesting thing about Can plastic is- Can you explain is what biomass is? Just living creatures. So all the living creatures in the ocean, if you look at the weight of all of those- um, yeah, I think she might have been referring specifically to fish, so that would obviously mm. just be all fish species. Um, but, you know, we've we've fished 90% of all the big fish out of the ocean and meanwhile we've just allowed all this plastic in. So it's a pretty simple mathematical equation for me to get my head around, but for most people I think it's kind of like, well, I'd rather there was more fish in the ocean than plastic, thank you very much, so what do you want me to do to help? So it's a really mm. good call to action. That's why that statement has been so strong. But, you know, a lot of the plastic that gets into the ocean ends up getting to the bottom of the ocean. So what's really ironic, and if you want to go there with me, Billy, is that, you know, the oil and the gas that we take from the earth, which is made of biomass that was buried, you know, tens of millions of years ago, we take the oil and the gas to turn it into plastic to then pollute 
the air and the water so that in tens of millions of years it will become petroleum once more. Like that's the kind of big universal cycle that we're on. Um, but the unfortunate side of it is that we're just going to trash the place that is, you know, our little Garden of Eden that is so perfect. It's just going to make it impossible for us to be here. But in tens of millions of years, you'll theoretically be able to dredge up old plastic as new petroleum from the bottom benthic layers of the ocean. <laughs> I stayed with you. <laughs> you stayed with me? <laughs> yeah. I might get challenged by some geologists on that, but I think that's um, My brother a fair point is to make. a geologist. Okay. I'll get him to <laughs> <Okay>. listen in. <laughs> cool. But, yeah, it's crazy. It's still cyclical though. Like, yeah. Um, I think it is kind of comforting in a way of like if we fuck up and if we don't change our ways as a species, like life will still continue on earth with or without us. Just in a very different way. In a very different way. Yeah. You know, whether through bacteria or animals, cockroaches, plants, kelp, you know. Totally. Um, (laughs) And that's where I think I'm, you know, on that was always my motivation when I was justifying why picking up three pieces of rubbish was great was that all this stuff, all this impact of our human actions on the planet, we're causing so much collateral damage. Like theoretically, if we want to go and be that species to shit in their own bed and ruin everything for us, we should be able to go and do that, like whatever. But look at the toll that we're having Mm. on this incredible biosphere that took a really long time to get so perfect. And that to me just hit my moral code and just went, mm. no, like that, that, that's where it, to me it's wrong. So as soon as I see the wildlife impacts of our human behaviour, I just get so riled up. I'm like, no, that's what needs to stop. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the point of like that's where you, Tim Silverwood, you crossed the Rubicon there. You're just like, nah. <laughs> yeah, not on my watch. I'm going to do whatever I can yeah. to limit that collateral damage. Love and that, that to me is, yeah. that's sustainability, right? Because to live in a sustainable relationship means that there's balance and mm, there's harmony and there's equilibrium mm. and everyone gets a chance. Symbiosis. Symbiosis. A sacred, a sacred dance. Yeah. I think still that Protestant ethic and that paradigm of us as a species having dominion over the planet or being not nature, which like I used to be a Christian minister, man. Like I used to teach a literal Genesis. And so God literally gave Adam and Eve like dominion. Well, Adam, not even Eve, Adam, the man, <laughs> dominion over this planet, gave the, the animals names and things. And so from a young age, man, I was so conditioned that, you know, well, you know, but this is our planet and every other species serves us. They're in subordination to us. And at the end of the day, even if we trash it, we're going to heaven anyway. You know, God's got an exit plan. We've got to get out of jail free card because heaven's our home. This isn't. So we can just, we're going to spread the gospel. That's the thing. (laughs) But eventually those stories kind of caught up to me and I kind of realized, no, like I'm responsible. I'm part of this. And when I realized coming back to more of a First Nations perspective on soil and that I am part of nature and it's part of me, that was the change for me where I was like, no, I can't keep living like this and I can't keep with this simple narrative that isn't regenerative for me or others or the wildlife that I see every day, you know? And so, yeah, it's 
man, those realization points are really, really important, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to Indigenous knowledge and perspectives. And I mean, I really feel like it's a really interesting time now where so many more people are actually opening up their heart and their mind to that. And I guess it's always happened, but that needs to enter the mainstream Mm -hmm. in such a significant way because with it, I mean, when you understand those perspectives and that knowledge and that beautiful connection, it's just you can't, you know, you're, you're forever changed. If you mm. if you actually fully understand and acknowledge that connection, it, suddenly everything you look at around you, you look at it through new glasses. Mm. And so if that can come through to the fore to become mainstream and to mm. enter parliaments and corporate behaviour and all these spheres, <sighs> you can see why that statement around like we can't have any of these other you know, rights and justices until we get that one right. You really just, that is so. That was the power behind the Uluru Statement. Mm. Um, Even Shono says that the only way that we can lose our cultural cringe is by coming back to First Nations knowledge, Mm. understanding. Mm. It just like neutralizes, brings healing. Like I'm just getting goosebumps just even talking about it. Mm. Like I feel like we're just so lost as a people in this country, man, just without that respect and that honour and that reverencing of this ancient wisdom Mm. that we fucking butchered and raped. Yeah. Yeah, man, I want to really honour you in this moment coming to the, the the latter portion of our conversation because I think it was hanging out with Johnny Dusto, Dusty Boots Music, just brought out a new song today. Did he? Yeah. I actually... I was I was playing a show with him and Nick Saxon in Sydney and the next day we were surfing with Mal's on the northern beaches somewhere. I think we were surfing in like Queenscliff or something and came out of the water. Johnny, I saw him just fossicking around the sand dunes just picking up plastic. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone on a casual day surfing intentionally. He's like, nah, dude, I'm just going to get my pieces of rubbish. going to get my three pieces. He found like an ice cream container. Um, a couple of loose plastics and a few things more, a couple of bottle caps. Um, and I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, bro, you haven't had to take three. Dude, two weeks later, um, hashtag take three for the C became part of my Instagram. This is five years ago. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, man. Like it's, it's crazy. And how much that was like uh, a fork in the road for me, like a beautiful change in trajectory of like it just created again that that early awareness, even though I was still on a very different path. But um, I remember though, like after seeing Johnny, it was two weeks later that I was back in Newcastle and I actually saw you on the streets of Newcastle just cruising around. That's when I first met you. It was five years ago on Derby Street. I recall it. Was that with Johnny? Yeah. Yeah. It was like Australia Day or something. Yeah. It was Australia Day long weekend and I saw you cruising down. I think it was with Eleanor, right? Was it with – yeah. Might have been. been. Yeah, it was five five years years ago. ago. We've been together for eight years now. Yeah, yeah, man. It was like early like 2015 or 2014 or something. And then I was like, oh, is that the guy? (laughs) (laughs) That's really sweet. Kind of fanboy, just kind of like – it was like my first – eco-warrior fanboy kind of moment. I was like, whoa, is that him? And I was a little bit intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) 
But yeah, man, I'm stoked that you've become a mate and a brother. It's, um, I feel like you just being like a few years older than me as well, just kind of having like a bit more experience, especially in this world, but also just the greater world as well of just experience. And I kind of, um, I wanted to ask you just summing up, like what, what gets you up in the morning now? If you could just sum that up really, really quickly. Yeah, look, um, I've been really enriched by my environmental journey so far and it's my purpose. And so for me, that hunger to fulfill that purpose, it's just there every single day. And now more than ever, I feel like we need strong voices and leadership for a vision for the future, which is, you know, is sustainable as cliche as that word's become. So, yeah, I just, I just, I still love it every day. Mm. Yeah, man, you just seem like you you exude a lot of purpose and meaning in what you do, and that's it's very attractive. I think you know, attractive presence. And um, have you ever had um, any any ups and downs with the conversation around you know mental health? Has that impacted you at all or that world? No, look, I think I'm a really fortunate character, whether that's nature or nurture. Hmm. Um, sort of back right full circle to that earlier commentary around putting yourself in the picture. I'm, I'm really good at that. So, you know, I do. I spend a lot of time, you know, in my mind imagining what makes me stable and comfortable and if I get a sense check that it's not I respond and and I react and I address it so I think at the end of the day I think purpose plays a big role in it like I'm so fulfilled in what I do Mm. Um, my relationships my you know attitudes what I do the ocean it's just a nice little space that I um that I've sort of curated and you know I, I do my gardening I do a bit of weeding here in my little self to to keep it healthy yeah because um I love going beyond the paradigm of just surviving like I love talking about thriving and finding thriving frothers can be hard sometimes man like and I've journeyed a lot through the, the music and film surfing eco world and to find people like holistically thriving in their space is really, really potent and powerful, you know? And I think, I think you're spot on. I think it has to be like a mixture within that, that soul ecology of um, listening to that, you know, that intuition, like you knowing that inner voice and that intuition when it comes to decisions, your proxy to nature, um, your lifestyle, living with purpose, the community that you're surrounding yourself with, Obviously, like diet would play a big role in that as well. But I think it's like there isn't, there's not one thing. You can't just pull a rabbit out of the hat to kind of be thriving. I think there has to be a few things in motion working symbiotically. Would you say the same? Yeah, yeah. And at this point, I would say, you know, there's there's being in balance and being in a good place and then there's sort of frothing and thriving and like at this point in time you know i'm i'm still working too hard i'm really indebted to my work and so there's there's sacrifices that take shape but 
I'm always checking in on those and acknowledging that mm. that is an interim period and I'm always, like I said, sense checking on what that thriving optimum version looks like and making sure that that is up on your mood board and you're always moving towards it, talking to, you know, your partner particularly about it and making sure together you are unified and united on that collective vision for the future. I do a lot of time thinking about that and we always, you know, pull out a big whiteboard, a bit of paper and just check in. Where are we at now? What's the five-year plan? What are you loving about where we're at now? What are you thinking needs improvement? What does the future look like to you in your optimum sense? Like all that mm. stuff to me, it just it really helps me make sure I'm clear because there is a lot of sacrifices that you make. Like yeah. being an environmentalist and doing the work that I've done is, you know, there's especially in a conventional sense, there's a huge amount of sacrifice. Yeah, and so um, you've got to make sure all the other positives outweigh the negatives. And again, back to what you observed. Nature, ocean, lifestyle. I mean, it's midday on a Thursday. I'm not in a cubicle. I'm sitting here with my man, Billy, recording a podcast. Um, You know, they all feed into a balanced life that works for me. May or may not be what uh, you're chasing, but just make sure you know what it is that you're chasing and build everything else out around it. Yeah. Yeah, those core values and... I love it. Like it just seems like you and Eleanor just really have that 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 collective kind of trajectory as as a couple as well. And like it's yeah, it's um, I love that you kind of share. You said you have a mood board, yeah, and you're sharing that with her as well. And it's just this this shared vision, your vision. You've obviously got your own agency, your own autonomy, independence. She's got her her own thing too, but you're sharing that together. And I think that's. Sounds really healthy. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's um works for us. Yeah, man. It's been so good chatting to you, bro. And like um, I just want to give you um shout out with things that you're doing with um we haven't we've run out of time, but we haven't even talked about Ocean Impact. But I'll leave the link in the bio as well, in the show notes. Is there anything you just want to say about that before we close up, man? Yeah, I mean we touched on it quickly before with this idea of building better businesses for yeah. the future. So, yeah, we, we basically help people start, grow and invest in businesses that positively impact the ocean. Mm. It's Ocean Impact Org and, yeah, Billy will include some links to it. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> so funny, man. Like uh, it's just like I don't, I don't know, man, if if I hadn't had that experience with Johnny like earlier on, like it, it could have – I would have always come to – the environmentalist world eventually, but I think like I really, really want to show you gratitude and thankfulness for the work that you've done and for the risks that you've taken and for you for seeing the writing on the wall and not running from it. Like when it comes to the planet and what the world needs, like you are fully in your ikigai doing like what you're called to do. It's like a divine thing and I think it's it's been so inspiring for me to watch. And I think it really caught me at a younger age at a time when I needed it, when I was getting distracted. But I think it really helped me to bring me to this place now. Like I'm, I consider myself uh, an artist, producer, environmentalist. It's like part of my, my three-strand chord now, you know? So, yeah, man, I think you're a key player in that. So Thanks, I think really. the, the ripples that you're sending out to the world 
are way bigger than what you think and and know. And so it's, you know, so, yeah. Thanks, man. I mean, that's in many ways that <clears throat> is why I do what I do. I mean, that's at the core of that purpose piece is that it makes an impact. So hearing you say that um, is really important currency for me. Yeah, dude, awesome, man. Um, I can't wait to see you on another TED TEDx talk one day and are you writing a book? Oh, there's been one in the wings for a while. <laughs> um, a lot of my peers around me are writing great books and it needs to happen. Um, but, you know, I'm enjoying making my podcast and yeah. just engaging. How many episodes are you guys on now? 33. Man, what day does it drop? Every Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah, you've got like a really cool theme song, they say. <laughs> the best, they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Yoops. No, man, thanks for um, coming out to TEDx Darlinghurst the other day. Like it helped me feel like more comfortable just knowing that Timmy Steelwood was there. It was awesome. You did a great job, man. Oh, dude. Cool, bro. <laughs> thanks for having me and bless you, brother. Thanks, Billy. Thank you for listening to the Beginning of Us podcast. This podcast is created on Bundjalung land, just south of Byron Bay. We pay our respects to the original custodians of this land. If this episode has connected with you, please leave a comment, share the episode on your Instagram stories, and subscribe to this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. The Beginning of Us is produced by Billy Otto. Theme music is by Billy Otto and Khaled Tusker. Technical direction by Eliash Perez. Find out all about Billy's many mindful projects and music by Instagram at at Billy Otto. Blessings to you and namaste.